And so we write our papers and they write their papers and may the best papers win. I, I, I don't think that's what we're watching now at all. I don't think we're watching a debate over how to get to the best outcome. I think that's completely wrong. And I've come to this conclusion, not, and I should say at the outset, I'm an Episcopalian, so don't take any theological advice from me because I don't have any. I grew up in the shallowest faith tradition that's ever been invented. It's not even a Christian religion at this point. Um, I say with shame, but I'm just saying this as an observer of what's going on. There is no way to assess, say, the transgenderist movement with that mindset. Policy papers don't account for it at all. If you have people who are saying, I have an idea, let's castrate the next generation. Let's sexually mutilate children. I'm sorry, that's not a political debate. What? What does that have to do with politics? What's the outcome we're desiring here? An androgynous population? Is that really what we are? We arguing for that? I don't, I don't think anyone could like, defend that as a positive outcome. But the weight of the government and uh, you know, a lot of corporate interests are behind that. Well, what is that? Well, it's irrational. What you're watching is not a political movement, it's evil. Well, hello and welcome. It's a big show again today. I've got Mark Spencer from Christian Schools Australia on the fight to keep Christian schools Christian and regular guest Kiralee Smith on the latest in the war on women and girls. Now, what Mark and Kiralee are fighting is the radical LGBTIQA plus political ideology, which is supported by the radical left and the libertarian right of politics. And it is so important that we get across these issues if we are to understand what is really going on in Australian politics and policies in the Western world more broadly. You won't want to miss those two important interviews. And while our political overlords are obsessed with their culture war issues, I'll analyze what they are ignoring, and that is the cost of living crisis that is making housing for the young people in our nation unaffordable. But first, what you just heard there in the cold opening, and this is going to feed into what we're discussing in the rest of the show this week, was American Fox News commentator Tucker Carlson giving an address to the 50th anniversary gala dinner of the Heritage Foundation in Washington, DC. Two days later, Carlson Fox's highest rating presenter with more than 3 million viewers per night was sacked. There's all sorts of speculation as to why, but it is clear that the Australian owners of Fox, Rupert Murdoch and his son Lachlan, had decided they wanted Carlson gone. Such was their ruthlessness that Carlson was reportedly told of his axing just 10 minutes before Lachlan Murdoch issued a public statement announcing the sacking. Now, some say Carlson's speech to the Heritage Foundation, Washington DC's preeminent conservative think tank, where Carlson used religious terms like good and evil to describe the political battle lines and encourage people to pray for America was the final straw for the Murdochs. Now, we may never know the truth, but what arrested me when I first saw this clip online was the fact that such a prominent commentator and powerful debater was saying what we all know deep down in our hearts, Evidence doesn't matter to the woke left who are radically reshaping our society. Good arguments, well-produced, written papers of high academic quality don't matter anymore and have not mattered for some time. When evidence doesn't matter, all that's left is the exercise of raw power and that's where we are today in our political discourse. Carlson rightly mentions the transgender issues and how it makes no sense logically and yet woke media, academia, and corporates all bow to the rainbow flag and all enforce its dogma. 
If you want to keep your job in media, academia, or in a big company where pronouns are in every email signature block, you'd better keep quiet about your beliefs. Carlson went on in his speech to mention the issue of abortion. If you say, well, you know, I think abortion is always bad. Well, I think sometimes it's necessary. That's a debate I'm familiar with. But if you're telling me that abortion is a positive good, what are you saying? Well, you're arguing for child sacrifice, obviously. It's not about like, oh, a teen, you know, a teen girl gets pregnant and what do we do about that? And victims of rape, I, you know, I get it. I, of course, I understand that. And I have compassion for everyone involved. But when the treasury secretary stands up and says, you know what you can do to help the economy get an abortion? Well, you, that's like an Aztec principle, actually. There's not a society in history that didn't practice human sacrifice. Not one. I checked. Now, Carlson is right to observe that the current political discourse can only be described in theological terms such as good and evil. Yet conservatives, particularly the ones still left in the major political parties like the Liberal Party, are told to stay away from the culture war issues, especially the issue of human rights for unborn babies. Just look at the treatment of Moira Deeming uh, in the Liberal Party down in Victoria. Her treatment by the leader, John Pesuto, and her spineless colleagues for standing up for girls and women against LGBTIQA plus political madness was certainly irrational. As, Carlton, as Carlson was rightly observing, these things can't be understood logically. So while conservatives are continually told to stay away from the culture wars, what does the left of politics do? They double down, of course. They keep fighting while our side rarely is on the battlefield. At least here in Australia, that is the case. Now, despite the obvious and embarrassing cognitive decline that Joe Biden is suffering, this week he announced that he would run for a second term as President of the United States. His slickly produced three-minute video announcement, now there's no way he would be able to announce this at a press conference, uh, he mentioned two iconic culture war issues that are priorities for the radical left and his puppet masters. Dictating what healthcare decisions women can make, banning books, and telling people who they can love. Now, I'm not sure about banning books, but I found it extraordinary that there was nothing about America's cost of living crisis in this whole three minute video, but abortion and same-sex marriage were front and center in what was a very, very short announcement video. These are the cultural issues that matter to the radical left, and they are not afraid to mark out their grounds, even in a presidential election campaign. Forget the invasion on the US southern border facilitated by criminal cartels smuggling people by the millions since Biden came to office. Forget out of control inflation, skyrocketing energy prices, unsustainable government spending, American geopolitical weakness, and the dangerous debt Biden wants to make. Biden wants to make the election about abortion and LGBTIQA plus issues. Now, like Biden, Labor under Anthony Albanese here in Australia is also not prioritising cost of living. It is fixated on its own culture war issue of reshaping democracy by inserting an undemocratic and racist voice into our constitution. The Albanese government is not serious about bringing down inflation by cutting government expenditure and debt or reducing energy costs by allowing our cheap and abundant coal and gas to be used. 
It's happy to leave the heavy lifting of fighting inflation to mums and dads with mortgages who must bear the pain of the Reserve Bank's interest rate rises. Now, most people are clueless that there are other levers to reduce inflation uh, than simply hiking people's mortgages. But the government is too ill-disciplined and too ideological to pull those levers. Sadly, the Liberals are not much better, having driven inflation up by overreacting during the pandemic with irresponsible government spending. And they are on a unity ticket with Labor in closing down coal-fired power stations and transitioning to expensive and unreliable renewables with no feasible backup plan to replace our lost electricity. Liberals, Labor, the Teals and the Greens are on a unity ticket on social policy when it comes to abortion and LGBTIQA plus political demands, and they are on a unity ticket when it comes to vandalising our once low-cost electricity supply. That's why Labor has the luxury of pursuing the voice. No one from the centre-right is fighting for the human rights of the unborn or for parents' rights to know about their children's gender transition at school. No one in mainstream political leadership is fighting for Australia to retain its comparative advantage in energy by using our abundant coal, gas and uranium. The Liberals punish those who stand up for girls and women against radical LGBTIQA activists. They marginalise those like Senator Alex Antich and Senator Matt Canavan who advocate coal, gas and uranium. Now, back in the US, Biden's pitch is to finish the job on issues like abortion and radical LGBTIQI plus politics. Now, that's because there are prominent Republicans like Ron DeSantis of Florida, who signed a bill protecting the human rights of unborn babies who have a beating heart. Imagine that, a law to protect humans with a beating heart. It's because Donald Trump kept his election promise and put black letter judges on the US Supreme Court who used proper legal logic and argument to overturn the farcical Roe v. Wade decision of 1973, which invented a power to impose abortion on all, US 50, on all 50 US states. Now, it's interesting to me that America's top conservative political commentator is sacked immediately after he delivers a speech pointing what is really at stake in US politics and culture. Days later, Joe Biden's puppet masters on behalf of the radical left and libertarian right put these same issues at the heart of his re-election bid, not cost of living crisis. Tucker Carlson was right. We are not engaged in a contest of ideas. We're engaged in a battle between good and evil. Now, while the radical left and the libertarian right of politics are fixated with culture war issues like protecting abortion and LGBTIQA plus rights, and the left of Australian politics is also focused on the racial politics of the voice, Australian families are suffering the worst housing affordability crisis in living memory. According to, to uh, a recent uh, Sydney Morning Herald headline, two thirds of Australian young people are giving up on the dream of home ownership. And, and this is having a significant effect on the economy and the social fabric of our nation. This is a national tragedy. To address this issue, the Family First political party believes that cutting red tape and green tape and increasing land supply and high density living where appropriate, these options must be urgently pursued by local and state governments. Think tanks such as the Centre for Independent Studies 
have also argued in favour of these solutions in submissions to government inquiries over many, many years. The solutions are not new, and sadly, neither is the lack of willingness to act. The lack of affordable housing is a growing problem in Australia, particularly as immigration increases. Nothing wrong with immigration increasing, but we've got a plan for more houses. And uh, with rising uh, house prices, rents are now outpacing wage growth, particularly in urban areas. According to the Sydney Morning Herald, the average home in Sydney now costs over $1 million, and in Melbourne, it is well over $800,000. This has made it impossible for many young people to save up for a deposit to secure a mortgage, even when interest rates were lower than normally they have been. Now, additionally, a lack of affordable rental options has forced many young people to remain in the rental market, again, making it difficult to save for that all-important deposit. The impact of declining home ownership is significant, with many young people feeling squeezed out of the Australian dream of owning their own home. The Sydney Morning Herald also reports that this is having a significant impact on the economy, with young people delaying starting families, which is impacting on the birth rate and leading to a decline in household and family formation. This is also impacting social mobility as young people are finding it increasingly difficult to establish themselves financially and secure their future. Sir Robert Menzies' vision that all Australians should be able to afford a home must be revived. In 1960, when he was Prime Minister, the median house price in Australia was around $7,400, while the average weekly earnings were around $51. This means it would have taken approximately 145 weeks or 2.8 years of income on the average wage to purchase a house in 1960. This is according to a report by the Australian Institute of Family Studies. Now, in contrast, in 2021, the median house price in Australia is around $950,000, while the average weekly earnings are around $1,755. This means it would take approximately 541 weeks or 10.4 years of the average income to purchase a house in Australia. Now, by cutting red and green tape, we could reduce the cost of housing by simplifying the planning process and removing unnecessary regulations. This will make it easier for developers to build new homes and increase the supply of housing, making it more affordable for young people. Now, only governments could engineer a land supply shortage in a continent like Australia, which is the most sparsely populated continent on the planet, uh, not counting Antarctica. High density living options such as townhouses and apartments can also help to increase the supply of housing in urban areas where land may be of limited supply, but that shouldn't be a problem in Australia. And this could help young people get onto the first rung of the property ladder. The Family First Party will campaign for affordable housing for young people and work to ensure that all Australians have the opportunity to own their own home. This will help to boost social mobility, encourage family formation, and provide young people with the security they need to plan for their future. What are your member schools facing if the proposals in this paper are given the force of law? Uh, devastation, uh, frankly. Well, that was Mark Spencer of Christian Schools Australia back in February when asked about the future of Christian schools under a proposal by the Australian Law Reform Commission to strip all religious schools of the freedom to employ staff 
who share their ethos. Now, just last week, the Federal Attorney General, Mark Dreyfus, announced that the Law Reform Commission would now have until December of this year to keep reviewing the religious freedoms of religious schools. Joining me now to discuss this latest development is Mark Spencer, the Public Policy Director of Christian Schools Australia. Mark, thanks very much for being with us today. Pleasure, Lyle. Great to be with you. Mark, your comments to Amanda Stoker on Sky News back in February were quite bracing. Most Australians think it's uncontroversial that we have religious schools and they're very tolerant of them and positive towards them. In fact, many Australians who are not even Christian uh, or religious send their children to Christian schools. In fact, your enrolments are up. Why are religious schools in Australia facing devastation under the Albanese government's law reform proposals? Well, you're absolutely right. Our enrolments are up. Uh, Christian schools, faith-based schools of all types, uh, are the fastest-growing sector of uh, the, the schooling uh, uh, sector. Now, that's because people are coming to us. They want our values. They want they want the, the type of education we're providing. But the proposals from the Law Reform Commission would strip away the ability for faith-based schools, Christian schools, Islamic schools, other faith-based schools, to employ staff who share their beliefs. And that's fundamental to who we are and the nature of the education we provide. We've just been collecting a whole range of stories from parents about how faith has impacted uh, how their their schools are uh, interacting with their students, how they're caring for their students, and what they're teaching in those schools. It's so vitally important. We need to keep that. Yeah, you're absolutely right. Um, look, it's no secret. I'm the product of a, a Christian school. Uh, the role models of all my teachers, the, the, the ground staff, the janitors, um, to, to the chaplaincy staff was um, absolutely important to my development. And of course, I wanted the same for my children as they went through Christian schools. Um, and to lose this, of course, is to, as you say, is devastating. Now, the background to this, of course, goes back to the same-sex marriage debate in 2017 and the religious freedom process that emerged um, from that debate uh, through Malcolm Turnbull to protect religious freedoms from the consequence of degendering marriage. Now, why is it, Mark, that Australian political leaders from both sides have found it so difficult to simply allow religious schools to believe and teach religious beliefs about marriage and the truth about gender as they stood prior to 2017? Um, I think if, if I knew the answer to that, I'd, I'd be a, a very wealthy person, probably not doing what I'm doing now. It's a really good question, Lyle. I mean, what we saw back in, in 2018, just after this debate started, was the release of the results of an expert panel review, a panel of highly qualified jurists, lawyers, uh, academics, who looked at this very issue. They, can, they consulted with thousands of people around the country. They, they did uh, a range of uh, uh, workshops and, and stakeholder consultations. And they basically said, look, the law, as it stood then, as it stands now, has pretty much got the balance right when you look at what the requirements are under international law. So that expert panel said, it's right, just to, just to make sure people are clear on what, what schools are doing, make sure they publish their policies, that's the way forward. But what we've seen since that is some very cashed up activists working very hard to try to undermine that view. And that's, that's where the problems come. You know, people do understand what we're about. They know who we are. We're very clear about who we are. We are Christian schools. That's the name on the box. That's what you're coming in and signing up for. Um, but people are trying to attack that. And these long held views around marriage and gender, these biologically supported views, these views held by billions of people around the world, 
uh, now seem to be uh, incredible for some people. Yeah, well, let's just um, you know bring out to the light who these some people are and these cashed up activists. Um, it, it's no secret that uh, you're referring to an organisation called Equality Australia. The CEO is Anna Brown, one of the leaders of the same-sex marriage campaign. Surprise, surprise. They didn't stop fighting once they won same-sex marriage. They've, they've kept on a crusade to undermine Christian schools and, and they've whipped up fear. And, and you've said this in your media release, unfounded fears that LGBT students might be expelled from faith-based schools. Is that actually true, Mark? It's absolutely not true. And we've been making that very clear since 2018 when these claims were first raised. That is simply a lie. There has never been a case that we can find where a student has been expelled simply on the basis of their sexual orientation or gender identity. Now, we have had students who may be LGBT who have been expelled from our schools. But when you look at the details of what's happened there, they've been expelled for behavioural problems in the same way as any other student would. What, we, what some people are trying to, to impose on, on faith-based schools here is a, you know, a special privileges for a particular group of students based around their sexual orientation or gender identity. And that's simply unfair. Now, it's good to clear that up. Mark, the um, Australian Law Reform Commission discussion paper, um, which, which caused a lot of angst back in February, uh, gave some examples of what it thinks religious schools should not be allowed to do. One was to take disciplinary action against a staff member or a teacher who attended a Pride event. But uh, this year's Sydney World Pride advertised animal fetish parties and, and a sexuality parade that featured puppies, ponies and whips. Now, most parents would be very concerned about a role model in their child's school who attended events that mixed sex, people and animals. Most mainstream parents would not consider such a teacher an appropriate role model. I certainly wouldn't for my kids. Why shouldn't a school be allowed to exercise discretion when it comes to employment of someone involved in that sort of activity? And again, you're asking a great question. Um, and, and I think the, the, the phrase you use there, role model, I think that's really at the nub of this. We're looking for staff in our schools, uh, not just to you know, impart curriculum or, or to teach subject content, but to be role models for students. You know, we're not dealing with young people who are simply brains on a stick that you fill up with, with content. And you know, the, the classic example that's, that's uh, used is you know, a maths teacher. You know, we get asked all the time, why do you need to be, be Christian and teach maths? But I'm not sure about you, but I can't remember what I was taught in year nine and year 10 maths, but I can remember my year nine and year 10 maths teacher. They were also the, the footy coach, as it happened. Now, teachers just don't do one thing. There are a range of things. They are a role model to, to students in their school. And that's the, the crux of what we're trying to do in, in Christian schools like ours. We want to be a community of faith, as the government has identified and recognised in the terms of reference for the Law Reform Commission. And we need to maintain that community of faith. And to do that, we need to have people who share our beliefs and share that faith. Yeah, it seems like the Law Reform Commission is way out of touch with um, the wishes of parents like you, Mark. I don't remember anything I was taught uh, in high school maths either, but I do remember my maths teacher's fast bowling on Friday afternoon cricket practice. Um, now, now, Mark, during the um, same-sex marriage plebiscite, the leaders of the same-sex marriage movement, Anna Brown was one of them who's now in with Equality Australia cashed up and going after Christian schools. They repeatedly said that concerns about religious freedom were furfies and red herrings. Were the Australian people told the truth during the same-sex marriage plebiscite? 
And, and I've seen that interview where, where you were part of that, Lyle, and, and some of the, the things that were said, and you pushed back and challenged uh, some of those assumptions, and you were told, um, you know, you were sure that it was not, never going to happen, it was going to be the end of it. I think many people in Australia, look, Australians want a fair go. That, that's fundamental to who we are. And I think many people in Australia thought that, uh, you know, providing for same-sex marriage was part of a fair go, and that was the, the end of the debate. Um, we've clearly seen that hasn't been the end of the debate. What we're now looking for is more than a fair go, but for really for special privileges for particular groups within our society. And that's, that's where I think most people in Australia are, are saying, you know, it's gone too far. And you know, the Australian public, I have great faith in them. Certainly our polling has indicated they're strongly supportive of our right to employ staff who share our beliefs. It is, as you said right at the beginning, a fairly simple, fairly obvious um, uh, presumption that faith-based schools can employ people of faith. So I have a lot of, um, you know, a lot of um, hope in the Australian public and, and common sense prevailing. But uh, yeah, I do wonder whether we were given the full picture back in, in that debate. Yeah, no, exactly right. And here we are six years down the track. It's still not resolved. Do you think it's possible to actually resolve this tension that's there in, in the politics? I think you're quite right. I don't think the Australian people mind that. They believe in religious schools and live and let live. But this political tension is there between the demands of the LGBTIQA plus political lobby, which, as you said, are cashed up, and the tension between the reasonable concerns of mainstream parents. How do we resolve this? And they'll be for our, our political uh, leaders to determine. But uh, when I look back over the history of this, we've been proposing sensible, balanced uh, solutions for the last five years. Uh, Christian schools, faith-based schools, we don't want to be spending all our time and energy having these political fights. We want to go back to doing what we, we do well, educating kids, preparing kids for life, preparing, preparing kids, in our case, for eternity, and making them young people who will contribute to our society. We want to get on with that business, not having these fights all the time. But there seem to be others who are just insisting on keeping these fights going because that's all they exist for. Um, we want to find solutions. We think there are solutions that can be found. It's just a matter of uh, political leaders having the courage to say, this is a line. This is a sensible balance. We've listened to the expert panel as a, as a baseline, for example, and this is where we're going to leave this and move on to actually doing positive things for our nation. Yeah, I think that's really well said, Mark. And um, it is a case of political leaders finding that courage to draw the line and to say no to what's been a very powerful lobby group. Um, well, this is going to drag on till at least the end of the year and, and well into next year. Um, I'm sure this won't be the last time we talk about this. Uh, Mark Spencer, thanks very much for your time today. Thanks, Paul. Well, it's time now for my regular catch-up with girls and women's rights advocate Kiralee Smith of Binary Australia. Kiralee, welcome back to ADH-TV. Good to see you again, Lyle. Now, now Kiralee, our woke elites continue their relentless quest to sexualise children, this time the International Commission of Jurists, the ICJ, as part of a United Nations Human Rights Conference, issued a document that contained language which could be interpreted as undermining laws which prohibit sex between adults and minors. Now, this is fiercely denied by the ICJ and the United Nations, so let's look carefully at what was actually said. The ICJ document released on March 8 says this, emphasizing that with respect to the application of criminal law in connection with consent, international human rights law requires paying due regard to Adolescents' evolving capacity to consent in certain contexts, in fact, even if not in law, when they are below prescribed minimum age 
of consent in domestic law. It goes on to say, moreover, sexual conduct involving persons below domestically prescribed minimum age of consent to sex may be consensual in fact, if not in law. In this context, the enforcement of criminal law should reflect the rights and capacity of persons under 18 years of age to make decisions about engaging in consensual sex, con sorry, I'll say that again, consensual sexual conduct and their right to be heard in matters concerning them, pursuant to their evolving capacities and progressive autonomy Persons under 18 years of age should participate in decisions affecting them with due regard to their age, maturity and best interest and with specific attention to non-discrimination guarantees, end quote. Now, that was a, a big quote there, but it's important to get the detail right. Now, this rightly, Kiralee, sparked a furor with the United Nations walking back what was said in this document at a press conference. A spokesperson for the UN Secretary General said this, in the application of law, it is realised that criminal sanctions are not appropriate against adolescents of similar ages for consensual, non-exploitive sexual activity, end quote. Now, nowhere in the original ICJ document did the qualifier adolescents of similar ages appear. Kiralee, what are we to make of all this? Well, look, I think it is very concerning because it's this very slow creep to continually blur the lines of uh, who a child is and what a child can consent to. And we're seeing this even here in Australia, you know, whether it was with vaccine mandates, whether it was with um, the transgender or transitioning of children without parental knowledge or consent, there's this redefining and reuse of words to classify children as mature minors. And uh, it is all around this issue of consent. Consent. And if children are young enough to consent to a sex change or to beginning the transition or if they're young enough to consent to medical procedures, why wouldn't they be young enough to consent to sexual activity? It's very disturbing and it's uh, very uh, it's something we must consider in terms of parental rights as well because there is this very deliberate blurring of the lines going on. It's moving the boundary ever so slightly, but they're definitely moving the boundary and we need to uh, wake up right now and ensure that we enforce the boundaries and protect our children. Yeah, absolutely, Kiralee. Um, look, whilst this might not have been the gotcha moment that some conservative media outlets thought it might have been, it, it does need to be discussed because a document with such loose wording involving children and sex should never have seen the light of day at a UN conference. Absolutely. And, and like I said, it's a very, con we're seeing it in other pushes in other areas and uh, we have to be awake and alert to the schemes because they're definitely there. And, uh, you know, what we've seen in the last decade, the last two, three, four decades is, is quite alarming in how much uh, opportunity uh, is given to children in this this realm. Yeah, yeah. This document used the word, you know, autonomy, you know, sexual autonomy when it comes to uh, minors. Um, where does this leave parents' rights when you've got, you know, jurists, uh, lawyers using this sort of language and, and suggesting this should be part of uh, member states' legal codes? No, I think it's absolutely incredible, especially when at the moment, children can't consent to having a tattoo or driving a car or drinking alcohol, a whole myriad of things. Parents tell me their kids can't even get on the bus and go on a school excursion without parental consent. And yet they, they have they can consent to 
sexual education, sexual um, ideologies and orientations and identities and all of these other areas. And now the UN is suggesting that adolescents can consent to sexual activity with one another. What's to stop moving that line and redefining the mature minors altogether? Yeah, it certainly um, does seem like a slippery slope and it's quite right that we shine a light on this. Now, now Kiralee, speaking of sexualising children, uh, you at, uh, at Binary have reported in the past week instant, more instances, yet again, of Australian libraries putting LGBTIQA plus men adopting a sexualised woman's persona in front of children. Um, the image on the screen is from uh, the Newcastle Public Library and um, this following image uh, of Cougar Morrison performing... Um, well, he, he was due to perform uh, at Maryland's library in WA. This is a very concerning image as well. What's going on here? Yeah, well, that, that image, I believe, is just taken from his Facebook page. It's not the one used to promote. The fact is, and we know Kevin Bacon has caused, caused an outright, uh, out stir, a big stir this mm. week, because he's trying to raise money to allow these adult men in woman face. So they use hypersexualized caricatures of women. It's a mockery of women and they're desperate to gain an audience of children. And we have to be asking why. You know, fine, drag queens can go in adult bars, they're adult entertainers. If you want to pay money to go and see them and if you want to be in that, that zone, go for it as an adult with other adults. But why? Why do these adult hypersexualized men who are making a mockery of women want an audience with children? I think that's the question we need to be asked. That is absolutely the question, Kiralee. And and look, um, that image of Cougar Morrison, I take your point, that's not what he would wear in front of children. But uh, most children I know have got a device and can search. They could Google Cougar Morrison and they would find uh, his Facebook page and those images. Uh, and and this, is, this is typical of so many of these uh, drag queens that they put in front of children. Um, you've only got to do a little bit of searching on the internet and... Um, you, you, you're confronted with images that are not appropriate. Now, Kiralee, you have reported on a, on a big women's rights case. It's also been in other mainstream media as well. When I say mainstream, mainly Sky News. Um, and, and that is the federal court case that, that's on today, Friday. Sally Grover, the founder of women's only app Giggle, is being sued by a biological male, Roxanne Tickle, for being excluded from that app. Now, here's what Sally Grover told Sky News recently about sex, it's not about gender. I discriminated on the basis of sex. A woman is an adult human female, and that was accepted by everybody until men decided that they wanted to be women. And the only way for a female-only space to exist is if it excludes males. So Kiralee, why is Sally Grover, who we just saw there, going to court for doing that? Well, Sal Grover is an incredible woman who is standing up for women's sex-based rights and realities. The issue is that in 2013, Julia Gillard, one of her last acts as Prime Minister, was to remove all protections for biological sex from the Sex Discrimination Act. There are more protections for people who identify as something they're not than there are for actual women or actual men uh, in the Sex Discrimination Act. And as a result, we now have this uh, issue where you, you can, under law, discriminate according to sex, but it also has comma gender identity. Now, these things are in direct opposition to one another. And now here we are in the courts and Sal and her team are going to challenge this all the way to the top if necessary, uh, because we need protections in law 
that are based on sex. And I'll, I'll just make the point as well, Lyle, that just this week, the New South Wales courts, I believe it was Bankstown, issued um, their findings on a hearing and a case um, where uh, a man in a change room exposed her penis to a young boy. Now, her penis is the most ridiculous statement that anyone could ever make. And yet that is what judges and courts in Australia are saying. It's a blatant lie. How can we trust the courts when they blatantly lie about her penis? But that's where we found ourselves. So this is a very important case for Sal and her team so that we can get those protections back in law and women and girls deserve those safe spaces and protections because of our biological reality. Yeah, really well said, Kiralee. I'm really glad you raised that case in New South Wales. I saw that uh, as well this week. Um, in fact, it was a tweet by Catherine Deves where she showed a screenshot of that uh, court judgment referring to her penis. I mean, this is sadly where the courts are. Uh, mentioned Catherine Deves. Of course, she's one of Sal Grover's lawyers. Here's what Catherine Deves said about Sal's case. This has the potential to be the definitive case to go all the way to the High Court to ensure that women and girls have the right to say no to men in spaces where they are vulnerable. It's really frustrating, Kiralee, to me that we're even having this conversation and that brave women like Sal, who've just seen yourself, Catherine Deves, have to go on television and, and state the obvious about biology and about what's appropriate um, in, in girls' and women's spaces. What does this say about where we've come to as a nation and the fact that there's so little political support for these brave women? Yeah, look, the mind boggles because throughout every culture, throughout all of history, uh, in all time, women are women and men are men. It's not been debated. It's not been contested. Yes, there are some adults that have fetishes or uh, confusion and struggles, but it's this insistence that we accept the lie as truth. That is the real concern. And it is extremely concerning that there is no political appetite to support women's and girls' sex-based rights, which is also men's sex-based rights as well. It's for the protection and the flourishing of our society. And uh, it, it really is insane that we are now at this place where we have to possibly go to the highest courts in the land to defend our sex-based rights and to say, uh, it's okay that we say no men in our spaces. No, it's absolutely right, uh, Kiralee. I know you and I will be watching um, what's going on in the federal court today and over the course of the coming week. And uh, let's let's make sure we chat about this again and update our audience uh, next week when we talk. Kiralee, thanks so much for being with me again on ADH TV. Thanks for having me, Lyle. Well, that's it from me for this week. Thanks so much for your company. Don't forget to check out all the amazing content on ADH TV and please share it. Get the word out, be a force multiplier. You can follow me on Twitter and Facebook and there's plenty of political news on the Family First blog at familyfirstparty.org.au. Until next week, goodbye.